You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This week's podcast is brought to you by Shutterstock. You might know of Shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. You can kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs are served to you in one place. You can take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash special slash collider. That's Shutterstock.com slash special slash collider. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I it felt, felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you stories about evolution, from an evolutionary biologist's creationist past to a sheltered student's attempt to evolve. Our first story this week is from Adam Andis. It was recorded in February 2017 at Luce Hall on the Yale University campus at an event we produced in partnership with Yale Women in Science, as well as the Yale Provost's Office and the Center for Teaching and Learning. So I'm from the heartland of the United States in the Midwest. Uh, when I was first born, my family and I lived in a trailer home on the hills in the outskirts of this town called Nawbone, Indiana. And we went to the kind of church where people regularly spoke in tongues. And traveling evangelists would come and they would cast out demons and we believed in faith healing. And it was the kind of church where people were baptized in cattle troughs or in bathtubs or in pools. Really, any time that there was standing water seemed like a good excuse to have your second or third or fourth baptism, it seemed like. <laughs> and so eventually my, my parents divorced and we moved to a new, more progressive church. But I have to say progressive with very, very heavy air quotes because this is the same Indiana church consortium that we shared with now Vice President Mike Pence. <laughs> so it's only progressive in context. <laughs> But it was at this church uh, that an evening speaker really inspired my trajectory in life. The speaker was from an organization called Answers in Genesis, and the organization's mission is to expel the, the dogma of evolution and replace it with a biblical interpretation of the creation story. So the, the speaker told us about how the, the Answers, the story in Genesis were real. The, the world was really created in six days, just as it says in the book, and that happened about 6,000 years ago. That Noah's flood really did occur, and it lasted for about a year, 4,000 years ago. And that everyone spoke the same language before the Tower of Babel. That giants really existed, like Goliath in the story of David and Goliath. But more importantly, he told about the earth before the flood that there was this hydrogen firmament that enveloped the globe and it kept in higher concentrations of oxygen and humidity. And it also filtered out all the blue light, so it cast the whole, the whole globe in this rosy hue. During the flood, there were these giant geysers that shot up through the Earth's crust, and this is what created the tectonic action that created mountains and inscribed things like the Grand Canyon into the crust of the Earth. But those geysers also 
broke the firmament, all that hydrogen came raining down as rain, which caused a global flood. And of course, it released all the oxygen, which uh, led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. And because dinosaurs are denser and heavier, they were the first to settle in this newly formed sediment of the flood, which is why we have stratification of the, in the fossil record. <laughs> So I'm this 10-year-old kid sitting in the pew, and I am just enwrapped because I, this gentleman has just handed me this story that perfectly weds everything that I knew and loved about the natural world from science and fit it to this narrative that I knew and loved from the Bible. And at that moment, I knew what my path in life was. I was going to be a world-renowned creation scientist. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I took it seriously, and I <laughs> and I bought every book that my meager ten-year-old savings could could afford from this gentleman, and I memorized everything that I could, that I could. I'm, all the facts and explanations that those books afforded, I just soaked it up. But the thing that those books really taught me was that the biggest obstacle I would face as a creation scientist was the systematic bias against alternative theories perpetuated by the secular scientific establishment. And so in addition to having these, these you know, the facts and explanations, I also had this moral imperative that I was a crusader of the truth. And so I marched off to school with this moral imperative and with this very literal explanation of how the world works. And any time a biology teacher in high school would tell me about speciation and how two animals could come from a common ancestor, I would say, that's absurd. Because think about it. If you have a crocodile and a hummingbird, to think that they could come from the same species due to nothing but random genetic mutations, that's like thinking a tornado could come through a junkyard and create a perfectly formed Boeing 747, or that a chicken randomly plucking at a keyboard could draft a perfect facsimile of Moby Dick. Or if someone brought up transition fossils or transition species like Archaeopteryx, a feathered dinosaur, I would, I, and claimed that it was a transition between reptiles and birds, I would say, well, why couldn't it just be a dinosaur with feathers? After all, platypuses have a duck bill and a leathery tail like a beaver, but we don't think that they're transition species between beavers and ducks. <laughs> and so I, 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 I really followed this martyr's errand because I was, I was a crusader. I took this all the way through my undergrad. Uh, I went to a little school in northern Wisconsin, and I kind of shifted my focus and gravitated more towards ecology and environmental studies rather than taking evolutionary biology head on. But one of the amazing things about this school that I was surprised was to meet all of these people who had wildly different backgrounds than I had experienced in Indiana. And these people who lived very different lifestyles. So I met folks who were gay, who were transsexual, who were atheists people who had very, very disparate ideas than anything I had ever experienced. And one of the things that surprised me the most was that from everything that I had read in the Bible, these are some of the most Jesus-like people I'd ever met. They were kind, they were compassionate, they were generous. And I, I really struggled for a long time with this because the Bible, the moral compass that I was given in the Bible told me that these folks were amoral. But yet my kind of internal moral compass told me that these are wonderful people and it shouldn't really matter how they, who, who they chose to love or how they choose to live. And I struggled with this for a really long time. And the only way that I could kind of make those two arrows of the compass align was through really arduous Bible verse cherry picking or these kind of 
theological acrobatics and justifications. But one of the tenets of creationism is that the book is a literal document. It was written the way it was meant to be interpreted. There, you can't, it's not in play to try and cherry pick and make justifications. And so all, these, all this struggle kind of precipitated into the slow erosion of my faith in the, the literal nature of the Bible. I realized that it probably wasn't meant to be taken literally and that in a lot of instances it was probably just flat out wrong. And the wonderful thing that happened because of that realization is that it absolved me of the need to try and shoehorn all of the facts I knew from science into this prescribed narrative. I felt like I had been spending years just trying to pound puzzle pieces together, then I just couldn't get them to fit. And then someone had delivered me a box with all the missing pieces and everything started to fit together. So as I was progressing away from creationism, my parents were moving in the opposite direction. And so this, this was really my reawakening to science. I set a new trajectory in life that brought me here to Yale. Now I study ecology and evolutionary dynamics. But every time I would go home, I would see a new book on my parents' bookshelf, like Taking Back Biology, or The Truth in the Fossil Record, or The Greatest Hoax on Earth. And they started going to, on vacation to the Creation Science Museum in Kentucky, which is great. There's a, on the, in, in the foyer in the entryway, there's an animatronic dinosaur playing with an animatronic kid, because before the flood, dinosaurs and humans walked on the earth at the same time. And it's been, it's been really hard for me, especially because I know how I felt about people in my position when I was a creationist, the, the kind of ivory-towered academic elite who were advocating for the secular agenda and just trying to sweep away and obscure any, any evidence of creationism. And it's really sad to kind of have this perspective and to know that my parents, you know, I'm probably the only first-generation college student whose parents are disappointed that he's getting a PhD. <laughs> And for the most part, it's been easier to just avoid all these conversations. Um, we tend not to talk about what I do now. But I was on this seven-hour drive from Denver, Colorado to Telluride for my brother's wedding. And we had lots of time on our hands. And there are all these questions that I just never thought to ask or kind of subconsciously, intentionally never thought to ask maybe when I was a creationist that I was just, I'm just dying to ask. So I asked my stepdad about the Noah's Ark story. Noah was building an ark for two of every animal to survive a global flood. So I asked him, you know, in the creation theory, all species that we've ever found in the fossil record had to have existed at the same time, which means that Noah, when he was building this ark for two of every animal, must have also intended for every species, including dinosaurs, to fit on this floating box. And that seems like an untenable amount of biomass. <laughs> but my stepdad didn't really even miss a beat and said, well, obviously Noah took baby dinosaurs. <laughs> Which is an attractively plausible explanation. <laughs> and so, you know, even if Noah did take baby dinosaurs, how did he fit, how was he able to provide habitat for both a Nambib sand gecko and a polar bear before the era of modern climate control? Or how was he able to provide food for, you know, obligate feeders like koalas that only eat eucalyptus or monarchs that only eat milkweed? <laughs> and there are endless questions that you could ask to poke holes in these theories, but in the end, there's also an endless number of equally plausible answers. And I think that's the thing that my tenure as a creationist 
really impressed upon me is an appreciation of story and the realization that no matter how great the facts are that I produce as a scientist or how robust my evidence is, it's only as good as the narrative in which it's embedded. And so while I'd like to think that for me being a better scientist just means being a better storyteller, when I look back at my own progression, it really wasn't the facts or the stories that made me change my mind, it was the people. And so I, I'm starting to think now that for me to be a better scientist, it's more about the infinitely harder task of just being a better person, of being the kind of person that people inherently trust, and the kind of person who has the patience to walk with someone along their journey of discovery. And I know I'm a long way from that, and I still have probably a lot of self-discovery myself to go through, but in that sense, it's just like everything that I love about science, that no matter where you are, there's always a ton more to discover and a lot more work to do. Thanks. That was Adam Andes. Adam is a PhD student at Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, where he uses population genetics and landscape ecology of fertile pool amphibians to understand ecological and evolutionary dynamics. Or, to put it more succinctly, he plays with frogs in the woods. Our second story today is from Angel Yao. It was recorded in September 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was home. So I won my first science fair project in first grade, and we had to create a solar system, and mine was the best. Um, it, was, it was carefully detailed, um, it was created with finesse, and it was just a great piece of art that my mom made for me. So. Um, so that felt really good, guys. <laughs> like it was a secret that I lived throughout all my life, and it felt good to just let it out. Um, but I have another secret. My mom did all my science projects. <laughs> um, um, so you see, my mom um, was a stay-at-home mom at that time, and I was the only child. And my dad kind of coaxed her to come to live in America. Um, and then he tricked her to marry him. Just kidding. <laughs> they're in love. They're in love. Um, they, yes, they're still in love. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, and my dad was getting a degree in interior design at FIT at the time. But he thought that he should stop putting money into the degree and just start working so he could start a new family so he could give money into that. And because of that sacrifice, my mom was grateful, but she felt trapped, like, because um, my dad was an old-fashioned guy. And so my mom was just at home all the time cleaning and cooking and taking care of me. But then when I got into school and started doing all these projects, that was kind of her time to shine. Um, and, and guys, we, we won, like, every year. <laughs> uh, we, um, because, mostly because, to be fair, 
we lived in a kind of a poor school district, and um, so I just remember this girl, Annie. She would photocopy a chapter of a book and hand it to the teacher, and she was like, I typed it on the computer, and here's my report. <laughs> and you know, this was the early 90s, so computers weren't that popular, but I'm like, Annie, come on, we could see the edges of the paper. At least put a cover on that report. Um, so not a lot of competition, you know? <laughs> um, and then sixth grade comes around, and that, you know, that was kind of like the last project, and we wanted to win, because that was the last year before I go into junior high school and high school, so it sucked if we didn't win. Um, so earlier that year, we did a, excuse me, my mom did a report on acid rain, so she thought we should do something about pollution. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure, sounds great. Pollution sounds good. Um, and then she would, um, she would, you know, come to me, and she she went to the school library and the public library and just borrow all these books about, you know, science. And I would just look at um, reruns of Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I'm like, oh my god, cartoon pizza looks so delicious. Um, and my mom would be, when do you want to collect? this, you know, like these polluted water. And I'm like, later. Um, and then a week later, she's like, come on, let's collect some polluted water. And I'm like, all right. And then a week later, it was like, she's like, um, the project's due in a week, and we have not collected any polluted water. She's like, let's go to Costco. So, so to Costco by us, there's this kind of like a lake behind it, and it's like near factories. And I guess to my mom, it was just the dirtiest water there it was in New York. Um, so that was what we decided to collect the water in. Um, so my, so it's my dad, my mom, and me. Uh, my dad's driving the construction van, because that's what he does. Um, and we were going to buy bulk food anyway, like might as well, since we were at Costco. Um, so we drive there, and we get to the water, and we realize it's so hard to get to the water. There's like a wall, and then we would have to like climb down these rocks. Like there's no way. And my mom got so angry. She's like, why do you always do things last minute, Angel? Like this, you know, this is impossible. And then my dad, he, he thought of getting, he had these takeout containers, like the cylinder ones, and he put holes in them. And he had strength, like he just fashioned this like right away. And it, he made like this pail. So we just like kind of like went through the edge. Hopefully no one was watching us. And like kind of dipped the, collected the water with the pail. And it took a few times, but we finally got the water and it was great. Um, and so since, you know, it was due in a week, we kind of fudged the data a little bit. Um, <laughs> we, um, we microwaved the plants to make it look a little bit more gross than it was. <laughs> And we won. We won. Um, guys, did you know that polluted water is worse for plants than not polluted water? <laughs> what a great discovery, right? Um, so then a few months after, or a few months before sixth grade graduation, my teacher pulled me to the side. She's like, come here, Angel. And I was like, 
I was like, she knows. She knows everything. I'm a fraud. She's going to be like, give me back all those ribbons. Give me back all those A++ pluses. Um, she was like, Angel, all the sixth grade teachers decided that not only you have great grades, but you're the sweetest girl. And we, we think that you should be a valedictorian of the elementary school. And at first I was like, there's valedictorian in elementary school. Um, but then she was like, your parents would be proud. And then I was like, first of all, Asian parents, never proud. They're never proud of their kids. Um, secondly, I just felt like a fraud, you know? <laughs> like my mom did all this um, and I didn't do anything and now I'm like place number one. And it's funny because I always overhear my parents talking on the phone with their relatives in China and Hong Kong. And apparently the school system there, everyone's ranked. Like if you're best, you're number one. And if you're average, you're number 252 or whatever. Um, so my, my relatives are always asking, what's my number? But so I'm glad we don't have that in America. Um, so now I'm like, now my mom could say I'm number one. Um, but feeling guilty, I, I just took that one sentence my teacher said. She was like, you're also really sweet. So I'm like, my mom, I didn't copy that from my mom. Like, I'm sweet on my own. And that's why I got valedictorian. Um, and then also, we had to make a speech for being valedictorian. So I was like, this is the last thing I have to do, you know, during sixth grade, grade school. I'm going to write this speech on my own. And um, that meaning I borrowed a book. It was tricks and trades for kids. And there were articles like how to make your own business by Mrs. Fields or um, how to make good, how you can be a good neighbor by Mr. Rogers. Um, and then my favorite, how you can get mighty biceps by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and all these articles are for kids and they're just like inspiring. So I kind of took like bits and pieces of it for my speech. Um, so um, I have a treat for you guys. I have my speech. I'm going to read it. Um, but before I read it, I just want to say I always question my smartness because of my mom. Because um, my teachers and peers, you know, they're like, she's the smartest girl. But they don't know that I procrastinate a lot. I'm lazy. I like to cut corners. Um, I have to read things at least five times before it gets in my head because I can't retain information. Um, so when I was reading this speech earlier recently, I was like, I think I really did learn something from my mom. So here's the speech. I'm going to try to read it like a 12-year-old angel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Before you be, what neighborhood was the school in? Um, it was Howard Beach, Queens. <laughs> um, to give context, and I always give this context about Howard Beach, Queens, it's the New Jersey of Queens. So that's, yeah. I was the only Asian person. That's another. Okay. <laughs> um, so here's the speech. <laughs> 
Good morning, Mrs. Jeremita, parents and students. Hi, my name is Angel Yao, and I will be doing the final speech for this morning. First of all, I would like to congratulate everyone for being here. You all deserve it. You've already learned much of what it takes to be successful in elementary school. It's much the same no matter what kind of school you're attending or what work you're doing. If you want to know what being successful is, it's a combination of doing and wishing. Wishes can't always come true, so you can certainly start by doing. Um, the most important part of being successful is learning to think for yourself. Now, thinking for yourself is the single most important part of your life. That means seeing your options, learning to make smart decisions, and taking responsibility for your own actions. It also means being aware of what's around you. So you make some mistakes along the way, it's all right. We all make mistakes, at least you tried. I have found that in order to be successful, you must determine what you want, what your goal is. That's what graduation is all about. <laughs> Who here is aware of the wonderful world around us, the opportunities, and much more? But first, we have to thank all our teachers throughout the years, especially sixth grade teachers, Ms. Cantrell, Ms. Carlson, Mr. Gutman, Mr. Riolo, faculty, and our office people. We also have to thank our principal, Mrs. Jeremita. Lastly, we want to give a hand to our parents because I know that each and every one of us have supporting parents, and they are always trying to help us along the way. As you build your own path, Always remember that there are so many people who want to help you, your friends, your family, teachers. They can help you, but remember, you have to help yourself. <laughs> Study hard. I hope you do well in the future. Yesterday is the past, today is here, and there is always tomorrow. <laughs> That's the best advice I can give you. Um, so all you have to do is this. Think first, think fast, and be yourself. Thank you. <laughs> that was Angel Yao. Angel is a storyteller, sketch comedian, and filmmaker from Queens, New York. She has a monthly show at Videology called VHS Present, where storytellers bring their home videos and childhood creations back to life. She is currently working on a new show for Solocom called If All My Dreams Came True. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings and helps new listeners find the podcast. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Yale and Union Hall for hosting these shows, and to our listeners. Yesterday is the past, today is here, and there's always tomorrow. That's the best advice I can give you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.